God's help, I want to try to continue on with this uh, series we were in. We detoured last week as we observed the Lord's Supper together. And we've been talking about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll read our text again here in a moment. And we are moving through this a little bit. Uh, We've talked about the enemy that we face, a very real enemy, a very powerful enemy, the devil himself, and how he has designs, desires to thwart us in our Christian walk. He has desires for those who are lost to remain in their sins. Ultimately, he desires to take God off the throne and to take his place. He's a real enemy and he's very strong. And we've talked about how we need to have a healthy humility as we go about this fight. Be very real and honest about our need for God's help. And one of the things that we've talked about is the armor that God calls us to put on is used. It's been used before. It's the armor of God. This is the armor that Jesus Christ adorned when He came into this world. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as it pertains to the breastplate of righteousness in a bit. But this is used armor. And He's asked us to put His armor on that He wore as He fought the devil in this world. We're told in this passage to put on the whole armor, all of it, its entirety, and to have resolve that we need to have Fundamentally, a desire to stand against sin and not just to give in, capitulate, lay down, to get off the mat and get up and fight the good fight. And last time that we spent time here in Ephesians 6, we spoke about the belt of truth and what that means to put on the belt of truth. And we tried to show in scriptures and explain that it was a commitment to integrity, Satan's primary weapon is lies. And so if we're going to fight the devil, we cannot fight him on his turf using his weapons. We must have the opposite of lies if we will stand against him, and that would be truth, integrity, in all the forms that it takes in us. And so let's read here together. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And we'll stop our reading there and we'll pray together before we go further. 
Our most holy God today, we desire your presence with us in a great and mighty way. For Lord, we stand in need of your righteousness. Whatever our situation is today, Lord, those who are lost, those who are saved, Lord, we stand in need of your righteousness in some way. And I pray, God, today for your grace and strength as I try to bring this message. Lord, I pray that you fill my heart and my mind with those things that need to be said. Lord, that you keep me from those things that do not need to be said. But above all, Lord, that you would help us to communicate today your timeless truths into the hearts of people, Lord, and that your spirit would work. God, it would stick us exactly where we need to be stuck, Lord, with the sword of your spirit today. And I pray, God, that we might come away from this, Lord, changed, moved, convicted, encouraged, whatever Whatever we need today, Lord, I pray that you would minister that to us. And even, Lord, minister to me as I stand here preaching, Lord, for I need this as much as anybody else in this room. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about the role of the belt, and I want to talk just for a moment about this, this metaphor the Apostle Paul's using. He's talking about a breastplate. A breastplate, when it comes to armor, it's two pieces. It covers the front and the back. And it's meant to protect your most vital organs from injury. Those organs without which life cannot be sustained. So it's protecting your heart. It's protecting your lungs. It's protecting all of those things inside you here that are so essential. That's the role of the breastplate. And it makes sense that after putting on that belt, which readies us for warfare, the next piece of armor the Apostle Paul mentions is the breastplate covering the front and the back. And here he calls it the breastplate of righteousness. So I want to ask the question, what kind of righteousness? Before we, before we ask what kind of righteousness we're talking about, I want to talk about what righteousness is, what, what it even means. And just very briefly, righteousness is whatever is right and pleasing to God. Whatever is right and pleasing to God, that is, by definition, what righteousness is. What does God want from me? How would He have me act? How would He have me speak? What does He desire from my heart right now? That would be righteousness. That thing that He, that specific thing that He's calling us to, and it's it's akin to holiness, especially as we're talking about people like you and me. For us to be holy is for us to become more righteous, to have righteousness in us. That's what it means for people like you and me to be holy. Now, as we think about righteousness and we talk about the armor of God, there are two different general kinds of righteousness that we could be talking about. Positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And I want to try to explain the difference between the two. But as we're talking first about positional righteousness, it's talking about what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved. And by positional, we mean, in a sense, your position or your standing before God. Where do you stand before God today? Are you saved or are you lost Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with God that you know about that has fundamentally changed you? Or do you not? Because if you have been saved, you are positionally 
by position before God, positionally righteous. Let me explain this. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The word justified. What does that mean? I have it highlighted, underlined up there. What does that mean? It is a legal verdict to be declared righteous. If you have been saved by the grace of God, you have been declared righteous by God in position to Him. That's what it means to be justified. And by that, it is just as if I never sinned, and it's just as if I always obeyed perfectly. Not just never sinned, but also always obeyed. For example, if I kept every one of the Ten Commandments in my life, and I did not do those bad things that I was told not to do, and I did the things I was told to do there, and yet if God came into my life and gave me additional requirements, say, like, like what? Like, He called me to preach. When I was 20 years old or so, senior year in college, I was, it was very clear to me. I was sitting in a service, and the Lord just told me as clear as day in my heart, preach. What if I didn't? What if I didn't? What if God called you or enabled you to do something in your life and then you didn't do it? Would it be sin? Yeah. Yeah. And so justification before God positionally, in a positional sense, is just as if I never sinned and just as if I always obeyed. Now, you look at me and you know I've not done that. But it is the righteousness of Christ. We'll talk about that more in a second. Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ and be found in Him. And listen to this last part. Not having my own righteousness, because my own righteousness, James's righteousness, is like filthy rags, Okay? the righteousness of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. My friends, that's exactly what Sister Ashlyn just sang about. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Why am I a wretch? Because I'm not righteous on my own. But saved. Saved how? By giving me positionally a righteousness through, the, through, through saving faith, by grace. I didn't deserve it. I don't earn it. That's the basic premise of salvation right there. And so it is this positional righteousness. Are you positionally righteous today? Have your sins been washed away by the blood of the Lamb? The second kind of righteousness that we could be talking about today is the practical righteousness. Practical righteousness is where James speaks to Christians and he says, be a doer of the word and not just somebody who hears it. You know, coming to church on Sunday morning is dangerous for you. 
if you have no intention to change anything in your life. It's dangerous. You are better off. If you have no desire to make any changes in your life, you're better off to just not come. Because it's better just to be ignorant than to come and actually know what thus says the Lord and then walk away and go, eh, nah. Because you're held accountable for what what you've learned, what you've been told, what God is saying to you. It's a dangerous thing. You see, the Lord wants us once we've been saved to have practical righteousness whereby He tells us what would be pleasing to Him. And then we actually try in our weak way to do it. Try in our weak way to obey and to follow after Him. Practical righteousness is living out our faith. Doing what He said to do in the way He said to do it. I believe, and it's very clear, as Paul is writing to a church at Ephesus, here's a quiz, are these people in the church positionally righteous? Well, if they've been saved, yes. They're positionally righteous. They're they're saved. They're righteous before God. So if Paul is telling a group of saved people to put on the breastplate of righteousness, what type of righteousness do you think he's talking about? Practical righteousness, okay? He's telling these believers to put on practical righteousness. So, and the point is that this is going to protect us in the warfare against the enemy. So let's talk about this armor for a moment. And I want to talk about, you know, how big of a deal is this? How good is this armor? How, how effective is it? Well, remember what I said. Whose armor is this? Whose is it? It's God's. Jesus wore this armor. Okay? And I'm going to show that to you in Scripture. Jesus wore this armor. How good is it? Well, we see back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 23, we see the Lord longing for a day. And this is, Jeremiah is writing at a time when the rulers of Judah were just wicked and were turning away from God. In fact, one of the leaders was taking, you know, prophecy Jeremiah was giving and caking it and cutting it up and throwing it into the fire like verse by verse. That kind of wickedness going on in, in Judah in that day. The Lord was longing for a day when one of the leaders of the house of David would be righteous. He says in Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David, out of David's household, a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. He'll actually do what's right. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord was longing for a day for someone to actually be righteous. Somebody who would do what was pleasing to him, who would speak what was pleasing to him? Who would have a heart that was pleasing to him? The Lord was longing for this day. I'm going to give you a little clue here. When it comes to the Lord, when it comes to Jesus, 
There is no distinction between his positional righteousness and his practical righteousness. The two are completely one. You see, I'm positionally righteous by salvation, but practically I'm not always hitting the mark. Right? And if you're saved, neither are you. But for Jesus, there was no distinction. And we're going to find that it was Jesus' practical righteousness lived out in flesh and blood here on the earth that made it possible for me to have positional righteousness. Okay? So the Lord was longing for a day. He was looking toward this day. And so Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 59, and I believe this is where Paul got this idea from in Ephesians 6. Yes, he was in prison when he wrote this letter. And yes, he saw Romans, Roman guards. But this idea of, of armor being used to describe spiritual warfare did not originate with the Apostle Paul. But Isaiah spoke of the same thing. And who was he speaking of? It says, And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. The Lord was wondering that there was nobody who could solve this problem of sin. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him, which meant kept him alive, kept him going. His righteousness sustained him. For he put on, and he's speaking about Jesus, he, Jesus, put on as a breastplate righteousness and a helmet of salvation upon his head. We're not to that piece yet, but you see here where this originated. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. About Jesus coming and putting upon him the breastplate of righteousness. This is where it comes from. And this righteousness is what sustained him. Sustained him in what? In what way? Well, go with me now to Matthew 26 to the trial of Jesus Christ when they were trying, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, was trying to come up with charges. It said, now the chief priests and the whole crowd were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. They tried to find something to pin on Jesus. Just something he had done wrong. And though people came forward, they could never find enough people to corroborate anything because nothing could stick. He was completely Teflon. And not because of legal maneuvers, but because he was perfectly righteous in every way. And of course, there was an accusation made against him. And they were able to try to corroborate it and take him before Pilate. And even though Pilate heard his case, Pilate said, look... I'm innocent of the blood of this man. He's not done anything worthy of death. But yet Jesus was taken by wicked hands and was crucified and slain. And as Peter talks about this afterwards, after Jesus had died on the cross, went to the grave, been buried, resurrected, right? And here they are on the day of Pentecost and Peter is preaching to thousands of people who've come out because the, the, the early church is speaking in different languages and Peter is preaching to them here in Acts 2. And listen to what he says. Him, he's speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Why wicked? Because he didn't deserve it. He was innocent. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Why? Look. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. 
It was not possible for death to keep its grip on Jesus Christ. For David speaketh concerning him, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thou thine holy one to see corruption. Why was it when death put its hands upon Christ and he was killed on that cross and he went into that grave, why was it that death could not keep its clutches upon Jesus Christ? It was because of his perfect righteousness. Because of his perfect righteousness. Because the power of death is what? Sin. That's why we have death, because of sin. But here you have the sinless Lamb of God that nothing could stick to. And because of his righteousness, my friends, Death could not hold him in that grave. And because if you've been saved, you are positionally righteous in Christ. One day when Jesus comes forward from those clouds, one day death will not be able to hold you either. How effective is the breastplate of righteousness? My friends, it's proven. It is a proven weapon. It is a proven safeguard against the very best things that sin can throw at us. And it's because Jesus was positionally, practically, perfectly righteous that we, when we're saved, we are positionally righteous. And it is that same armor that he's telling us, you put this on now. You put on the breastplate of righteousness so that you can stand in the evil day. So that when Satan comes at you, my friend, if you would try to practically live out what God is calling you to do, my friends, this armor works. It works. It will protect you. It will help you. Putting this on is pleasing to God. Putting this on is pleasing to God. He desires this of us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. To reverse the curse, the curse of sin and death, meant to impact the cause of the curse. Sin. Sin's the problem, right? Sin is the problem. And the Lord going to the cross was not just to give us a ticket to heaven, but what He was there trying to address was the root problem in our hearts and in our lives, and that's sin. And what is pleasing to God, what God desires, what the reason He saved you, that He desired you to become someone who would be what? Zealous of good works, as Paul wrote in Titus 2. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto Himself a peculiar people, meaning His own people, who were zealous of good works. Works. What is righteousness? Quiz. What's righteousness? It's what's pleasing to God, right? It's what God wants. It's what He desires. 
Are these like arbitrary rules that he came up with? No. The commandments, the things that he's told us to do, they're a reflection of his character. It's what he's like. He is righteous. That's what he's like. He is righteous. And when he saved us, his desire was to pull back from the claws of Satan his own people, his own people, not just to have a bunch of people in heaven, but a people who would be like him, who would have the same kind of heart as him, who would bear, in a sense, the family resemblance. You know, some of you, as you sit with your families, or I know your parents, or I know your children, I can see the family resemblance, can't you? I got to meet Sister Betty and Sister Tommy's sister the other day at the ordination. I said, it looked like the best parts of Betty and Tommy were all poured together in one person. You could just, you could see by the smile and the sense of humor, just, yep, yep, I, I, I saw it. I saw that family resemblance. Of course, she liked it when I said that to her too. But um, you think about a family that has a tradition of military service. You know, where there's a grandfather that served, and then the father served, and, and then you have that next one come down the line. The first time they get to see that child in the uniform, you know, it's got to bring a sense of joy to their heart. You know? I'm sure someday if Sister Caroline ever puts on a robe, Brother, Brother Donald's heart's going to swell, right? In a sense, the family resemblance to something being passed on, right? My friends, that's how the Lord God feels about righteousness. He's righteous. And he longs to look into the eyes and the heart of his children and see people who also have a heart and a desire for righteousness. That we would be zealous of that because that's what he's like. And so it pleases him. It pleases him to no end when we would seek to do what he's called us to do and, and to try to turn from our sinful ways and attitudes and words and actions and try to turn to something that's consistent with his character. It's not what I'm like normally. I know what I'm like and I'm not that great of a person at all. But when I become more of what he likes... That's pleasing to him. But it's not just about in this passage about what's pleasing. It's about what's going to protect us. What's going to keep us safe? Because the reality is we are living in a warfare in this world. Satan's goal is to take God's place. He wants to cast God off of the throne. And when our first parents sinned, Adam and Eve, what were they fundamentally doing? They were fundamentally choosing Satan over God. They were choosing Satan over God. And every time we sin, we believe the lie. And isn't it a lie? Isn't what sin promises us a lie? But yet we believe the lie and we go and we do the things that we should not do, would not do, and there is that warfare in us, but we're making these same kinds of choices. Let me ask you a question. How does somebody who is insecure and inadequate exalt themselves? How does somebody who is insecure and inadequate lift themselves up? 
Oftentimes, it's by tearing down the competition. And that's exactly how Satan seeks to work in our hearts. For he is insecure and he is inadequate. And so his desire in our hearts are to, is to make us think less of God and more of him. And isn't that what the wager was with Job, right? I bet you, if things in his life go wrong, he'll curse you to your face. I bet you, if things are hard, he will curse you. He'll choose death over you. That was the satanic wager. And so Satan did all he could to turn Job's heart against the Lord. You see, the way that Satan comes at us and the way that righteousness is meant to protect us, it starts in our hearts. It starts with our very attitude. Here in James chapter 3, I want to show you a passage, and I think this is very profound because you see here exactly how Satan works. James chapter 3 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, meaning his behavior. Let him show out of good behavior his works with meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. Don't be proud. Don't lie against the truth and say, oh, my motives are good. This wisdom, this kind of bitter jealousy and ambition, it says it descends not from above. It doesn't come down from God, but it is earthly, sensual, devilish, demonic. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that's from above, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be untreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, from a heart of peace and humility. From them that make peace. Where does righteousness come from? It starts in the heart. It starts with our attitudes. What, what we're really about and what James is warning us about here is having a heart of ambition and jealousy. And if that's what's motivating you to do things, the only things that can come out of that will be wickedness and contention and strife. But if you want to produce righteousness in your life, it starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. We spent time, I got to spend time with some of the teens this morning. We've started a new, a new series, bringing the teens together to talk about money matters. Got 12 weeks we're going to spend together as the teen classes are joined, and I got to kick it off, and then some, we're going to take turns with the other teachers. But I was doing an intro lesson, and my point today was this. Look, what you do with your money is a roadmap to your heart. It shows you what's going on, it shows you what it is you really desire, what you're really seeking after, what's really most important in, in your life. This is ultimately not just about learning to budget and save and all that kind of stuff. This is about your heart. This is about the rest of your life. 
This is about choices that you're going to make and whether you're going to please God or not. This will affect and trickle down to all aspects of your life. Friends, it starts with the heart. And if we're going to adorn the breastplate of righteousness, we need to go before God and ask Him to help our hearts to get right. And it will flow through then into our actions. Think about David's affair with Bathsheba. He was not wearing the breastplate of righteousness then, was he? Not at all. He, he left it off. He didn't put on the breastplate of righteousness and go to war. He stayed home and took a chill. And then he saw Bathsheba, committed adultery, ultimately had her husband killed to hide her pregnancy. All these horrible things. And what was the result of that? The Lord said through Nathan the prophet, because of this deed... You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. David was told, because you did this evil deed, because you did not follow God, the enemies of the Lord are having a heyday. They're saying all sorts of things. They're blaspheming the name of God now because of your falter in this area. You're giving them traction. You're giving them places to play and tread and advance the causes of Satan rather than the causes of God. Well, what were the enemies of the Lord saying? Well, probably saying things like their master says, because what is he? Satan is an accuser. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers. Who's that? Satan? The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Day and night. He is an active accuser. He will love to sneak into the crevices and cracks in our life, gain a foothold in places that we're not trying to live for God and use that as a vantage point to bring us down. If we're not adorning the breastplate of righteousness, He will seek to undermine our witness, to ruin your witness as a child of God, the work you should be doing to make you look like a mockery to anybody that you try to talk to Christ about. He'll also try to wrap you up in spiritual bondage. Get you so tied up and confused that you don't know which way is up and have you even doubting whether you're even God's or not. My friend, he, he is a trickster. He is a, a jailer. You read about Pilgrim's Progress, how he had Christian and his friend in jail by the giant despair. My friend, sin can just take you, as the saying goes, farther than you want to go, make you pay more than you're willing to pay. It can do all of those things and tie us up. And then even after we try to turn back to the Lord and try to put on the breastplate of righteousness, He will try to come after us and keep hitting us with guilt over and over and over and over and accusing us and saying, you know what kind of person you are. You know what you did. You know who you are, who you really are. You can't do this. He'll kind of come at us in all sorts of different ways and that is the way He attacks. And so we must... Put on the breastplate because this is real warfare. The Apostle Paul spoke about this 
and his own concern for his own life. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The Apostle Paul was always aware of his potential for moral failure and how that would jeopardize his ministry. I tell you, it terrifies me to be me. It terrifies me to be me. Not just the position of being a pastor, but to be me and to be a pastor. To know the things that go through my head and the things that I am tempted to say or do and to be concerned about, I need to live this out because if I don't live this out, just like the Apostle Paul, I've got to stay after myself because otherwise, what? I'd be a castaway. And what would that do to the work of the Lord that he'd be trying to accomplish? And I think that any of us, I know these deacons have to think about that. Right? Because, in a sense, you're in a glass house. In a sense, you're in a glass house. And, and you realize that you need to try to practice what you preach. And in a sense, every one of us who name the name of Christ should be thinking about that. Because if you are vocal and honest and tell people that you know Jesus Christ and that you're really saved and they see your life, I mean, my friends, you may be the person who can take the gospel to them and they get saved. Their eternity changed. God has put every single one of us around people to witness to them, to show them about Jesus. And we all should be concerned about what kind of life we're living, what we're saying, what we're thinking, what's going on in our lives, because it matters. Otherwise, we're just Satan bait. We should be concerned about these things. And not just to protect ourselves, but to please our Lord. 1 Timothy 3.7, I'm coming to a close. It says, Paul speaking about the qualifications of an overseer. He must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. When you ordain somebody, they've got to have a good reputation. Because if they don't, if they're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness in a real practical way, you know everybody, especially in small towns, you know who they ordained? Oh, my word. Right? Yeah. You see, there has to be a good, godly reputation. Not just among the old and the ordained. Paul writes to Titus and he tells him to teach young men. I'd say the same thing is true of young women. Exhort them to be sober-minded in all things, showing a pattern, a pattern, not just once in a while, but a pattern of good works in doctrine and the things that they teach and believe, showing uncorruptness, a gravity, a sincerity, sound speech that can't be condemned. What? All that what? So that he that is of the contrary part would be ashamed or silenced, having no evil thing to say. So that 